Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're working our way through this book. Last week in chapter 4, we learned that Israel got their clocks cleaned in a battle with the Philistines. And it seems that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, you know that box, that gold-plated box where the mercy seat was that sat behind the veil in the temple in Shiloh and later Jerusalem, that Ark has fallen into the hands of the Philistines, or so it seems, but we'll see this morning that the truth is the Philistines and their God have fallen into the hands of the Lord of the Ark. And as Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, particularly when we are his enemy, but we can be his friends. What kind of God is this? What does this passage teach us? Let's consider that from 1 Samuel chapter 5. This is the word of God. When the Philistines captured the ark of God... They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of the God to Ekron. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the Ark of the God of Israel. Let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. 
Our Father in heaven, uh, we would bow before this word and we would ask that you by this word and by the work of your spirit would do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or imagine for your glory and for our good. Do it, we pray, because of your grace in Jesus. I ask in his name. Amen. Amen. We may worship the true God, but it is possible that rather than worshiping the true God as he really is, we are worshiping the God of our own conception. In other words, uh, we we may have a, a kind of false or distorted view of who God is, and to some degree then, uh, we have a false God. And that's part of the problem here in Israel and in Philistia. They didn't have true conceptions of God, and God had to expose their misconceptions of him. Now, we've already seen one of, the, one of the massive misconceptions the people had from chapter 4. They viewed God as the magic God, the God of magic, right? They, they, the Israelites had had the snot beaten out of them in chapter 4 by the Philistines. And what was their answer? Hey, let's go get the ark that's like 15, 20 miles away. Let's get it out of the temple. Let's put it in front of the army. And then we'll win the battle. Then we'll win the victory. Why? Because then our God will fight for us. Why? Because then God's reputation is on the line. This is the ark of God. He'll have to give us victory. We saw that what they were doing was using God. They were thinking of God in superstitious ways. We can manipulate him. We can force his hand. And of course, God didn't let them have their way. And though they lost 4,000 in the first battle, they lost 30,000 in the second battle as they got crushed. Why? Because God is not a genie in a bottle. And you cannot rub his belly to get him to do what you want him to do. Even if you bring out the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in front of your army. And so he had to teach them that they had a a wrong view of him. Now in this chapter, he teaches us some more wrong views of him. And here we see three more misconceptions people have about God. That the Israelites had, that the Philistines had, and that we may have. Uh, we, may, we may think that he is the defeated God, verses 1 and 2, or 3. That he is the helpless God, verses 4 and 5. That he is only a regional and therefore limited God, verses 6 to the end. That's your outline. Let me invite you to consider these myths about God. There's the myth of the defeated God, verses 1 to 3. What's going on here? Well... The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant of God. And what did they do? They brought it from the battlefield, Ebenezer, to Ashdod, one of the chief cities. This is along the coastline near what modern-day Gaza is. And so then what did they do? They, they set up the Ark of God, verse 2, and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. Now, why did they just smash the Ark? Why not melt it down to get its gold? Well, it seems what they're doing is viewing it as the prize of war. Uh, This is is them putting on display to be seen by not just the priests, but all who come to the temple, that that the God of Israel is but a footstool for the God of the Philistines. They're gloating in their victory by the way they've set this up. 
And now the Israelites had, had thought that they could use God by twisting him to get him to do what they wanted. Now the Philistines think they can use God, his ark, to prop up the reputation of their God. They're saying to themselves, Dagon is better than Yahweh. Our God is bigger than your God. Our God is the victorious God and the God of Israel is the defeated God. That's what they're saying. But don't believe what you read in the newspapers when you get up the next day. Why? Because whatever their newspaper said, they go into the temple that next morning and verse 3, what do they find? Dagon on the floor bowing before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, performing an act of worship, symbolically. This victorious God, Dagon, is now worshiping the defeated God. This was a battle of gods. What did they do? They took Dagon, picked him back up, and put him back in his place. And you can imagine the writer is grinning ear to ear as he says these things and that the Israelites who hear this begin to chuckle. After all, what kind of God is it that has to be lifted up and set back into place by his own people? He's victorious, but you gotta, you gotta, you got to pick him up off the floor. Uh, there's a, a fascinating account... Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce this Japanese warlord's name, Hideyoshi or Hideyashi. He ruled Japan in the late 1500s. He commissioned a colossal statue of Buddha and placed it in a shrine in Kyoto. It took 50,000 laborers five years to build. But the work had scarcely been completed when the earthquake of 1596 brought the roof of the shrine crashing down and wrecked the statue. And in a rage, Hideyashi went a couple days later to the shrine and he pulled back his bow and he shot an arrow into that fallen statue saying, I put you here at great expense so you would watch over and help the people, but you can't even help yourself. Well, that's Dagon, the God of the Philistines. He couldn't help himself. But Yahweh of Israel, therefore, wasn't defeated. The Lord, what did he do? He actually set the sign and symbol of his presence with his people, the Ark of the Covenant. He set it in the temple of Dagon. He went there as a missionary to expose their false religion. But, of course, tragically, the Philistines are blind to this truth, right? Such is the darkened heart of man that even when his idol is torn down, he seeks to prop it up, right? And make no mistake, it's a mercy when God tears down the idol. When he shows the idol to be weak, inept, unsatisfying, disappointing, fragile, false... Now, what's an idol? It's not just some statue or figurine that people make and set up in temples. It's a false god. And anything we love or respect, anything we trust or desire, anything we fear or cherish more than God, that to us is our god. That is an idol. It's a rival to the true god. 
It might be pleasure. It might be possessions. It might be power. Our God might be sex or money or positions of influence. Our God might be success or security, ease or entertainment. Our God might be a child, a spouse, or our independence. Whatever it is that we love and respect, trust and desire, fear or cherish more than God, that is an idol for us. And it is a mercy when the true God strips those false gods of their allure. When he knocks them down, when he shows us they aren't ultimately satisfying, that he alone is the fount of true blessing, that he is the stream from which we must drink if our eternal thirst is going to be satisfied. When he shows us that he's the victorious God and the only God worth having. This story is a a kind of warning. It warns us. As well, not to judge too quickly, says Derek Thomas, the seeming providences of defeat. Right? Israel gets wiped out. You can imagine back in their homes, they're in misery. They're in shock. They're burying their dead. Who knows what they're thinking about God, but they just know that they were defeated. And so evidently, their God was defeated. But you know that wasn't the case. That ark was a sign and symbol of the presence of God with his people, and he was not defeated. That same God later, as you know, became flesh in Jesus Christ and dwelt among us as the reality of the presence of God in the flesh among us. And what did the world do when he came? The world took him captive. What did the world do when they had him in their hands? They put him to death. And for three days he was under the power of death. He seemed to have lost to the devil, succumbed to death, and been defeated by all his religious enemies. In fact, all the people crying out, crucify him, away with him. And his own people, his own disciples who did believe in him, they were what? They were distraught. Because they misread the apparent defeat. For on the third day, he rose from the dead. He, he triumphed over the grave. He defeated all our enemies. He defeated death. He defeated the devil. He, de- he delivered us from our sins by his death and resurrection. So that what you have is the God who seems to be defeated is in fact the victorious God. No other God is worthy of your love and respect. Your trust and desire, your fear and your affection. It's a myth that he's defeated. Secondly, it's a myth that he's helpless. Verses 4 and 5. Just so that nobody deluded themselves into thinking that Dagon accidentally tumbled into bowing before the ark of the Lord. The Lord pulls him down again. They go to bed at night. In the morning, this time what? Verse 4, they rose early in the morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. That sounds familiar. But this time, the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. What happened? Overnight, God sliced off the hands and severed the head. Only the trunk, it says, was left to him. 
In fact, there's a, the way it's worded is only Dagon was left to Dagon, it says. Only the trunk. The head and the hands have been moved. They've been put on the threshold. He's just a stump. He's got a uh, Humpty Dumpty kind of problem. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Well, that's what's happened here. And what's going on? The Lord is showing you. That Dagon is defenseless, but the Lord isn't helpless. He fights his own battles. He doesn't have an ally in the Philistine camp. He doesn't have an ally in the Philistine priesthood. And yet he conquers when it seems he's helpless. Because he can, in fact, help himself. He isn't helpless. Why do we need to get that worked into our heart of hearts? Why do we need to think that way? Because a lot of people think opposite of that the old pagan religions in the ancient times people thought the gods depend on them you might think god depends on you you remember that in genesis chapter 8 you have the story of the flood and uh, noah and his family's salvation they they come out of the ark and uh, they respond in thanksgiving and they offer a sacrifice to the lord and the lord receives it with favor there's an old babylonian myth that piggybacks on that but twists the story it's found in the epic of Gilgamesh and it's about a man named Utnapishtim you can call him Ut for short he was a flood survivor he survived the flood on a boat he offered a sacrifice at the end of the ordeal he relates how the gods smelled the aroma of the offering and the drink offering and how the gods gathered like flies at the sacrifice the gods gathered the gods and goddesses gathered like flies why because they were hungry why were they hungry because during the time of the flood nobody was available to feed them with their offerings nobody could give them a proper meal they were languishing see in paganism people sustain god but in the bible God sustains his people. He doesn't need our help to sustain him. And this passage exposes the kind of foolishness that thinks that just because the ark is in the temple of Dagon, that the God of the ark is helpless. He's not. And the Philistines need to learn that he is supreme over their God. And the Israelites need to see that he is supreme and utterly independent of his people. He's not helpless. He doesn't need your help. You could slide into thinking, what will God do if I don't do this? What will God do? What would he be able to do if I don't do that? Whatever it is. There's this uh, poetic ditty that says, you know, God has no hands but our hands. He has no feet but our feet. He has no mouth but our mouth. If that's true then our God is in terrible shape. He's critically ill. But that's not the kind of God you have. God doesn't need his people. And that's good news. When Jesus was betrayed by a kiss in the garden, Simon Peter thought to come to his rescue. And so he pulled out his sword and he swung at Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and Being inept, I suppose, he missed his head and caught just the ear, but he knocked it off. And Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. 
And then Jesus bent down, he picked up the ear, and he put it back on the man's head and he healed him. Because Jesus didn't need Peter to fight his battles and to get in the way of Jesus' own purpose, which was to go to the cross. It's good news that the Lord doesn't need us to accomplish his purposes. It's freeing. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying, the text isn't saying, the Bible isn't saying that God doesn't want his people. Yes, he wants his people, but he doesn't, strictly speaking, need his people. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 1 to 4, the prophet tells us that we don't have a God we have to tote around. Uh, Speaking of different gods, Bel and Nebo, listen to this language, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. You see the picture. These gods in the form of statues are riding on beasts of burden. And when the, when the beasts stoop down, the gods stoop over. They cannot save the burden. They themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and I will save. What a great thing it is that God says, you don't have to carry me, I will carry you. Because there are plenty of burdens in this life that you and I have to carry without having to carry the burden of carrying our God. Our strength is from him. Our resources are from him. This has a very practical application regarding our collection of an offering. We don't give to God in order to prop God up. He gives to us so that we, his children, can express thankfulness and learn to be generous like he is. We can bear the family image. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, beginning of verse 7, Paul says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So Paul goes on to say, do you see this? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see what Paul's getting at? God, he says, doesn't want you to be hesitant, unhappy, feeling obligated, feeling under the weight of the burden of maintaining his ministry. He wants you to be thankful, willing, cheerful, 
happy in your giving and service of Him because you're giving what you know that He freely gave you. But oh, the unhappy heart of the person who thinks that God is depending on them. Who gives thinking they're propping up God. How shriveled and miserly we become because we grow to despise and resent this needy and helpless deity that we have fashioned after our own image. But God isn't helpless. He takes care of himself. Therefore, he is the help of the helpless who are happy to be helped by him and then freed to be happy in the service of him. He's not needy and he's not helpless. And the third myth is this, the myth of the regional God. The hands of Dagon were cut off, as the story says, but verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the Philistines. Notice verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and he afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now, there's a little bit of uncertainty exactly what's going on here. Some think that the tumors are actually, it's a little indelicate, hemorrhoids. And the reason why is the word can be translated that way. In fact, the Latin Vulgate, the translation of Jerome, translates verse 6 this way. He smote them in the more secret parts of their posteriors. Well, I mentioned it's a little indelicate. Wouldn't that, however, make for an interesting read when you come across that in your morning devotion? (laughs) Some, however, see here the tumors as the bubonic plague. Now, why did they see it that way? Because in chapter 6, verse 5, we hear of rats ruining the land. And the rats, as we know, are carriers of the plague, and the plague brings symptoms which include swollen glands of the armpit, the groin, and the sides of the neck. Untreated, it's fatal for about half of those who contract it. So some would have had painful growths, and others would have expired. But regardless of what the disease is, they had tumors, And some died, and the Ashdodites confessed that neither Dagon nor they could stand before the heavy hand of the Lord. Now what is the Lord doing? He is speaking to them in the language that they can understand, in the language of affliction. Let me share the story of Daniel Ritchie. He says, I was born without arms. That's the best way to summarize my story. I stepped into suffering at birth. My physical body is a billboard for my pain. This has brought mocking, cruel jokes, stares, and the constant feeling that I am not like anyone else that I ever meet. I've never been able to hide. Many people can bury their pain, but my heartache is written all over my two empty sleeves. And he goes on to say, I've always been drawn to 
C.S. Lewis and his perspective on pain. Lewis, he says, had tasted pain. Some of you know the story that Lewis had lost his mother at an early age. His father had uh, in some ways emotionally abandoned him. He suffered from a respiratory illness. As a teenager, he fought and was wounded in World War I. He finally had to bury his unbeloved wife. Lewis wrote about heartache in the book, The Problem of Pain, and he says this. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And everyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God, I think here, is shouting to the Philistines because shouting was necessary. They kept pushing him away. They, uh, he would not be ignored. They kept passing him off. He kept laying his hand, his heavy hand, on them. And so you see, after this official consultation, the Ashdodites send the ark uh, to Gath, uh, another Philistine city. Now, maybe they just simply want to get rid of it. Maybe they just hope they're going to get relief if they get rid of this thing. But, but I think more likely, at least in part, certainly they wanted that, since they send it to other Philistine cities... It may be that they're testing whether the Lord of the Ark is in fact a regional deity. Is he only strong in Ashdod? He wasn't strong in Israel, apparently. That's what they think. Is he only strong in Ashdod or is he strong in Gath too? Well, Gath too, the story tells you. So the people of Gath, suffering under the heavy hand of the Lord, decide we'll send it to Ekron. Now, the local god in Ekron is Baal Shebub. We learn that from the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, when he rebukes the king of Samaria, who's on his, well, he doesn't know, he's on his deathbed, but he's very ill. He seeks the help of who? He seeks the help of Baal Shebub. Elijah rebukes him with these words. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal Shabab, the god of Ekron. So there's this regional deity in Ekron, Baal Shabab, and the Lord shows that he is supreme over that regional deity too. This is again missionary work, God's missionary work. He's saying to them, Dagon can't help you in Ashdod. He can't help you in Gath. He can't help you in Ekron, and Baal can't help you in Ekron. The one who afflicts you is the only one who can help you. He's saying to them, stop pushing me away. Repent. Turn to me and live. But the Ekronites say, nothing doing. They simply want to get God out of town. And so it says that the Lord's hand was very heavy against them against them all everywhere the ark went because the lord is not a regional deity and he brooks no rivals 
He doesn't just have power in Israel or power in Ashdod or Gath or Ekron. He has power and authority everywhere. You cannot escape him. He makes himself known in judgment or in grace. Everywhere, anywhere, at any time of his pleasing. The charge is sometimes leveled at Christianity. Uh, Malcolm X and others have famously said this, that Christianity is a white man's religion. Due to, in part, the historical connections to um, the rise of Christianity in Europe and then the spread of Christianity from Europe to uh, the United States. But of course, God doesn't think that way at all. Christianity is not a white man's religion and it's not a black, brown, red, yellow, green or blue man's religion. Jesus says after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because I am a God for all peoples. You, he says to his disciples, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also Judea and also Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why? Because I have authority over everywhere. There is no place where he is not Lord on the earth. There is no one you can talk to over whom he is not the supreme authority. Granted that there are plenty of places with plenty of people who have not bowed the knee to his rule or sought him as their savior. They keep pushing him away. He keeps inviting them to repent and be saved. They need to hear. Some of you may be privileged to go and to speak. Sometimes you hear people say, of Christians in America. Well, the only reason you're a Christian is because, well, you were raised in America. And America's Christian. You were raised in a Christian home. You were raised in a Christian church. That isn't true at all. You're a Christian because the Lord laid his hand on you in grace and had mercy upon you. And his gospel of grace came to you Because perhaps long ago he sent missionaries to the United States to establish churches that preached the gospel. That brought perhaps your grandparents and your parents and then you to faith. But he did that. And in our generation, millions of people, not in the U.S., but in South America and Africa and Asia, are coming to faith every year because God is laying his hand of grace on people all over the world. Because... He is no regional deity. By his blood, Jesus ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people group and nation. How can Christians then know if they're worshiping a true or false conception of God? Well, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you take a good look at who I am, the image of the invisible God. You will know what the Father is like. If you see what Jesus is really like, you will see what God is really like. And in this story, the Lord is showing both the Philistines and Israel and us what he is really like. He is not a defeated God. He is not a helpless God. He is not a regional God. Do you know him 
as he really is. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you rule and govern all things. You sit enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. And thank you that you loved not just Israel, but that you loved the world in this way, that you sent your own beloved Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Grant us to believe and so to live. In his name I pray. Amen.